You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The distribution of health care in a just manner is a vexing problem in the contemporary developed world. It seems so overwhelming as to be refractory of solution. In the contemporary developing world, the virtual non-existence of health care, which dooms all but the powerful to debilitating disease and early death, is tragic. Attempting to tackle the problem is much like an American president attempting to solve the problems in the Middle East. The challenges in the distribution of health care are economic, political, ethical, and just plain human. The just plain human challenge is simply the matter that the goods that can be delivered by the healthcare profession are finite, and the infinite need and demand for these goods seems infinite. When to these challenges is added the commitment of Christian practice, it seems that the complexity is compounded. In describing the ideal of healthcare informed by the values of the Catholic tradition, the religious and ethical directives for Catholic healthcare institutions have recourse to an understanding of the banquet of the parables of Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke at 14.13. The theme is extending hospitality not as a medium of exchange. You invite your friends, your family, and important people to the banquet and they are understood to have a duty to reciprocate, but rather of extending hospitality as a way of rendering care to the vulnerable. Jesus instructed the disciples with these words, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind. The directives in quoting the words of Jesus stop here in mid-sentence. It is instructive to complete the sentence. The text reads, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they are not able to pay you back. The text concludes with the promise that God will repay you on the day the good people rise from the dead. The claim that Catholic health care is a response to the challenge of Jesus means that Catholic health care institutions are not primarily economic entities although a sound economic base is required for their continuous operation. They are institutions that first and foremost are called to extend hospitality, medical care as hospitality, to the vulnerable. Hence, Catholic health care has a particular identity and an additional set of challenges that derive from its special mission and identity. What I would like to do in these lectures is, first, to examine some of the challenges to healthcare, second, to suggest a reformation in the way we think about healthcare, third, to offer some suggestions in regard to healthcare as a political enterprise, a way that a democratic polity puts into places the structures that serve its needs, and fourth, to offer some suggestions in regard to healthcare as a Catholic enterprise, a way that a people with a particular set of values fashions the structures that witness those values. First, the economic pressures. 
Among the economic pressures are the rising cost of health care, coupled with an ever-increasing demand and ever-increasing cost of the delivery of high-tech medicine. The steadily increasing percentage of gross national product from 4% in 1940 to over 16% in 2000 that is consumed by healthcare costs, the steadily increasing cost of insurance, insufficient levels of reimbursement from government and other third-party providers, the reluctance of patients who now perceive themselves as fully covered to pay out of pocket for health care, an increasing number of uninsured, now numbering about 14%, with the consequences of their limited access to health care, and the demand for ever higher, increasingly obscene levels of compensation by physicians, especially physician employees. Added to the economic pressures intrinsic to the practice of medicine is the pressure spawned by our litigious culture within which medicine is practiced. This litigious culture, whichever its origin, has generated numerous lawsuits, some justified and some not, against physicians. Of course, those that are justified ought to result in appropriate and sufficient awards for damages to the injured party. And if the harm was the result of medical malfeasance, it ought to result in the appropriate oversight and penalty of the physician, including the penalty of loss of privilege of practice. Some of the lawsuits, however, have resulted in outrageous financial rewards, well beyond reasonable compensation for the economic losses caused by the injury. When to this compensation for economic loss, is added outrageous awards for pain and suffering, the disproportion of the financial award redounds through the system, across the professions, and ultimately back into society. The frequency of the lawsuits has resulted in the loss of physician time from practice, in the increase in medical tests and procedures ordered for patients in order to protect physicians and hospitals, which results in an increased cost to patients the increase in malpractice insurance, the decrease in the number of physicians willing to engage in certain specialties or to practice in certain geographic regions, and the rise of a new generation of obscenely wealthy trial lawyers who receive 25 to 30% cut of the jury awards, and the downward social spiral continues. Among the political pressures, political is broadly construed, are the competing claims of the efficiency and appropriateness of the federal government as the sole provider of health care, as opposed to similar claims of the free market to provide health care through a variety of mechanisms that range from fee-for-service to profit-managed care systems. Among the ethical problems are the just and appropriate use and distribution of medical technological advances what accounts as disease to be ameliorated by medicine, the question of the withdrawal and the withholding of treatment that is no longer beneficial, the continuation of treatment that is beneficial, and rationing, precipitated by infinite need and finite resources, of particularly beneficial services. To try to put some order into this complex problem, let me begin by addressing the issue on the level of the individual in society, then move to the professions, and then finally to a consideration of the problem of system. But before going forward, two observations need to be made. 
The first is that we live our lives as individuals in society. And the second is that healthcare is a scarce resource. The first requires us to regard the good of others as well as our own good. The appropriate operative ethical principle is not who dies with the most toys wins or who dies after having consumed the most resources wins. The operative ethical principle is love your neighbor as yourself. The second observation requires us to understand that healthcare is a scarce resource and obliges us to use it wisely and appropriately. These observations apply across the board, that is, for the individual, for the profession, and for the polity. The problem of healthcare as a problem for the individual is first a conceptual problem, that is, the problem of understanding the essential nature of healthcare. Very often, the attempt to approach the issue is to locate it in the disjunction which is offered in the following. Healthcare is either a right or it is a commodity. At the extreme, the right holder claims that healthcare is a positive right, a welfare right to be provided for by, well, by someone. The commodity claimant considers healthcare as a bit of merchandise, another thing to be purchased by those consumers who have sufficient funds. This proposed disjunction is a false dilemma. Neither understanding taken on its own is correct. However, each has some truth in its claim. So perhaps what is called for is a higher insight that embraces the truth of each and leaves behind as false the absolute claims of both. It has been suggested that healthcare be considered a good, a basic good, such as food, clothing, and shelter. Basic goods are the necessary conditions for human flourishing. So if healthcare is a basic good, then it occupies a position similar to other basic goods. But the basic goods are produced by society for the good of society. In this highly individualized environment, human beings often forget the social nature of the production of the basic goods, and they often forget the givenness of the materials that are present in the world to make possible the production of the basic goods. These materials include the raw materials of the earth and the intellectual material of human intelligence that guides the enterprise that fashions the raw materials into goods. Those who are capable participants in society are responsible to take reasonable means to provide these goods for themselves and for their families. If for some compelling reason, however, there are some people who, because of infirmity or immaturity, are unable to provide this goods for themselves or for their family, then the basic good needs to be provided for them. If healthcare is appropriately considered as a basic good, then the same principles which are operative in supplying other basic goods should be operative in the distribution of healthcare. Everyone should have this good at a basic level. Once this basic level is provided, then the scarce resource should be made available for purchase. The liberty to purchase should be accompanied by a sensitivity toward those who are less well endowed. A second problem for the individual in regard to health care as a basic good is the understanding of its scarce nature. One of the ways that human beings understand the scarcity of goods is in their real payment for goods. 
However, now much of healthcare is compensated for by third-party payments. Private insurance, most often paid for by employers as a benefit, or by government in its Medicare and Medicaid programs. This is a relatively new phenomenon. It came into existence after World War II. Now, on its face, that seems like a good, and it is a good, but it's not an unproblematic good. The delivery of this new good forgot to take into account human nature. The third-party payment system insulated the individual from the cost. Therefore, the basic good ceased to be understood as a scarce resource. Economists observing this new arrangement report that the use of medical resources by patient varies dramatically with the existence of third-party payments. Their conclusion, easily understood when human nature is taken into account, is that the larger the share paid directly by the patient, the smaller the growth in expenditures in medical products and services. Conversely, the smaller the share paid directly by the patient, the larger the growth in expenditures in medical services and products. A third problem for the individual, even the individual who recognizes the scarceness of resources, is the best way to use the resources. A reasonably healthy lifestyle contributes to the lessening of the need for scarce resource. But inevitably, the day arrives when there is need. And what then do we require as medical intervention? The response most often heard is do everything. But what does do everything mean? It ought to mean at least that the medical intervention be appropriate. That is, that the resources used in medical treatment provide a commensurate benefit to the person. This seems an appropriate place to recall and apply the distinction between ordinary and extraordinary means in the pursuit of health care, and to insert a reminder that only ordinary means are morally obliging. A fourth problem for the individual is the reminder that the power of health care is to provide a limited means to care for a limited life. We are finite beings, and the material bodies of our finite sojourn are corruptible. That our lives are lived in such circumstances is gift and limit. Stanley Hauerwas suggests that the practice of Christian patience has a great deal to offer to the community in its concern for health care. Stanley says, to be patient when we are sick requires first that we learn patience when we are not sick. God has given us ample resources for recovering the practice of patience. First and foremost, we have been given our bodies, which will not let us do whatever we think we should be able to do. We are our bodies, and as such, we are creatures destined to die. The trick is to learn the great good things my body makes possible without hating my body, if for no other reason than the death of my body is also my death. To practice the patience of the body is to be put on the way to holiness as we learn that we are not our own creations. The patient acceptance of the limits of health care and the patient acceptance of the limits of life prevent our looking to health care for a salvation that it cannot deliver. A fifth problem for the individual is the understanding of the appropriate restriction of the scarce resource of medicine to medical need. Medical resources have as their primary application to cure disease, to assuage suffering, and to provide compensation for disability. 
the use of these scarce resources ought not to be requested by people until such time as medical resources are available in sufficient quantity to respond to real need on the part of the community. This requires individuals to be sensitive to the needs of others, to be aware of the requirements of solidarity. An appropriate remedy here might be for the individual who has the desire and the wherewithal to purchase medical resources that become available outside of basic needs after all of the basic needs have been met to donate an amount of money equal to the cost of the procedure to a relevant charity. To address the problem of the distribution of health care at the level of the medical profession requires that the observations previously indicated, that is that we are all members of society and medicine is a scarce resource, be recalled. And to be remembered that the physician as individual encounters the same problems as other individuals. The physician though, as professional, assumes greater responsibility for proper distribution. A consideration of the nature of the profession provides the grounding of the obligations of the profession and sheds some light on how the profession can contribute to the amelioration of the distribution problem. Membership in a profession is a privileged position whose purpose is to serve the public good. This commitment to serve the public good is paramount, even though the practice of the profession provides the livelihood for the professional. The privilege of membership in a profession confers status on those so admitted and confers obligations upon those admitted. The profession of medicine, however, is not the private property of the physician. The physician receives knowledge and power from institutions that the society has put into place to allow the physician to become physician. While the physician worked very hard for their education, and while physicians pay a great deal of money for that education, which represents a part of the cost for the education, and the physicians have a right to expect a fine level of compensation for all of that work, they ought not to consider the profession their private property. The institutions, the medical schools, the colleges and universities of which they are sons and daughters, the scientists, both the famous and those who labored in relative obscurity, who came before them, their teachers who invested so much in them, the country which sustained peace and offered them the liberty that permitted them their course of study, were not created by them. All of these were put into place by society that some might have the privilege of becoming physicians in order to serve the needs of society. Physicians, by accepting the opportunity to become physicians, enter implicitly into a social contract between themselves and the society for the purpose of caring for the sick and disabled members of that society. Physicians ought to remember this social contract, reflect on its meaning, and explicitly affirm it in their actions. Having accepted these particular goods of this society, physicians have certain obligations, certain duties toward it and its members, to use the skills that they have learned and the competencies that they have mastered for the good of their patients and for the good of their society. A second problem for physicians lies in the success of medicine. The advancement of medical science, technologies, medicines, antibiotics, combined with advance in pain relief medication, has opened the door for the safe use of the art of medicine beyond serving the sick. 
These tools can be used to satisfy human desires, whether that desire to be more beautiful, to look younger, to be taller. How ought the profession respond to these desires and where ought the line be drawn? There have been in the past 50 years a proliferation of the non-medical use of medicine. Plastic surgery is just one example. Elective abortion is another. On the horizon is the request by patients for the amputation of healthy limbs. If the request is given a name, such as body dysmorphic disorder, and if it is included as a disease in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Medical Association, ought physicians to apply their sophisticated surgical expertise to satisfy this disease? Now, just as individuals ought not to use medicine for non-medical needs until the basic health care needs of all members of society are met, so too physicians ought to reserve the use of their skills to medical need. If the basic needs of all in the community are met, then physicians should enjoy the opportunity to satisfy appropriate human desires. An appropriate remedy here might be for physicians who have the expertise, desire, and the time to render such non-medical service to donate an equal service to a less fortunate person. A third problem for physicians in maintaining their own competence and the competence of their profession is that each physician is required to be competent in the discipline and to maintain the standards of the discipline. The maintenance of the standards of the profession requires physicians to oversee their colleagues. Attention to these related obligations should decrease the level of harm, whether that harm be culpable or not, to patients with a subsequent decrease in malpractice suits on account of serious injury. Of course, all of the obligations developed here for the medical profession apply mutatis mutandi to the legal profession. With all of these considerations in place, the next consideration is the role of the democratic polity in putting into place the necessary structures to serve health care. How will the polity make possible a system of health care that serves human needs, that respects human dignity, and that recognizes human limits, that is competent and efficient, that rewards the sacrifices of those who provide service, and will continue the marvelous advances of medicine? Now, while I do not want to play American president in the Middle East, I do want to offer some suggestions. Neither a free market approach nor a welfare rights approach is adequate. The free market approach forgets the needy. The welfare approach is unmindful of the limits of human nature and the limits of the resources of medicine. Here are a few suggestions. The first is that when healthcare is understood as a basic good, then it follows that the primary obligation falls upon individuals to provide it for themselves and their families. With the satisfaction of this obligation comes the right to make choices. However, choice is always limited, and here should be limited to real medical need. Second, if an individual cannot provide the basic good of health care, then the polity is obliged to provide a health care package. That basic package will have to be limited. The determination of the contents of that package is to be a task undertaken by public participation of all the stakeholders. Third, medicine is a scarce resource. The scarceness of the resource will be ameliorated if individuals use it only when they need it and if physicians restrict their practice to real medical needs. 
Fourth, because of the economic stratification of society and because of the stratification of medical need, there will have to be put into place assisted opportunities to purchase a variety of plans. Fifth, the intersection of medicine and law at the point of patient harm should be settled not in the courtroom, but before panels with the expertise and practical wisdom to render fair judgments and the power to enforce these judgments. Finally, the Catholic healthcare system has a particular witness role to play in the contemporary world. If for economic reasons and practical reasons it chooses or it must withdraw from its extensive involvement in medicine, then Catholic healthcare institutions should provide services where those services will have the greatest impact for the values it holds and the values it would witness. The locus of Catholic healthcare may shift to issues at the beginning of life, the care of pregnant women and their children, and to issues at the end of life, the care of the dying. And in their refusal to kill, they may initiate the transformation of the culture of death, a culture that embraces killing as a solution to problems into a new culture of life. That there are few Catholic healthcare institutions and that their range of service would be rather limited should not appear to be overwhelming obstacles in a tradition that once numbered 12 and the 12 had limited resources. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.